You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. How does our gut health impact things like weight gain or weight loss? How does the health of our gut and our microbiome impact our immune system and our resilience against things like colds and flus and also overall chronic diseases? We're seeing multiple epidemics of chronic diseases right now and it has a lot to do with the health of our gut. And that's what we're talking about today. Now, in particular, looking at one of the biggest struggles in our culture today, which is an inability or a struggle to lose weight, how does our gut health play into this? Well, researchers at Yale University School of Medicine have found that our vagus nerve, which communicates information between our gut and our brain, is playing a big role in this. This is an information superhighway that, according to these researchers, our brain and our gut are sending information back and forth about the volume and the types of foods that we have available in our system. And our brain can literally tell our gut, depending on its perception, depending on its perception, this is the key, it can tell our gut to either increase or decrease its absorption of calories from the food that we're eating. It can tell our gut to increase or decrease the absorption of certain nutrients. This goes far beyond this calories in, calories out paradigm. Calories absolutely do matter. It's a unit of measure that we have uncovered that we can agree upon, but the story is so much bigger. There are multiple epicaloric controllers in determining how our body is utilizing the calories that it's exposed to. And it's gonna be different from person to person. And according to these researchers, what's happening in our gut and what's happening in our brain is a major controller of all of this. Now let's dive in and get up in them guts right now. Let's talk a little bit about that, what's happening in the gut that can be influencing this process. Well, a recent study published in the International Journal of Obesity revealed that a higher diversity of gut bacteria is directly correlated with less weight gain and improved energy metabolism independent of calorie intake and other factors independent of calorie intake our diversity of microbes is playing a huge role in how our bodies are processing or associating with calories determining whether or not we're gaining weight now again this is yet another example of how two people can consume the same amount of calories but one gains weight while the other person does not our microbiome is a huge player in all of this, our metabolism, our brain health, and much more. And on this episode, we're going to be hearing from one of the most published researchers in the world on all things gut health, the microbiome, and more. He is the author of over 400 peer-reviewed studies, and not to mention several best-selling books on this subject matter. He is a true leading authority on this subject matter. And also, if you're wondering, how is my gut impacting my brain? And in particular, my mood, like what are some of the underlying factors there? Well, the human gut itself is a mass of neural tissue, things that we would often associate 
with the brain and the nervous system. Our gut is actually filled with 30 different types of neurotransmitters, just like the brain, and more, by the way, 30 that we've identified. Because of this massive amount of brain-like tissue that's found in the gut, it's rightfully earned the name as the second brain. So the gut is often referred to as the second brain, technically known as the enteric nervous system. This second brain also consists of around 100 million neurons, more than what's found in our spinal cord or even the peripheral nervous system. Truly, there's a lot of thinking happening in our gut. And this connection between our gut, our microbiome, our brain and nervous system is controlling so much about our lives and our reality. But if we don't get this education, if we're not aware of this, and also what are the inputs? What's happening when we're putting subpar information in the form of low quality ultra processed foods into our gut versus real nutrient dense foods? What are those outcomes gonna look like? Today, we're gonna talk about that and so much more. And without further ado, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Dr. Emerin Mayer is a renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist, and he's the author of over 400 peer-reviewed studies. Over the past 40 years, his research and published work has offered groundbreaking evidence with the critical role of the bi-directional interaction between the brain and the gut, and more recently, on the role of the gut microbiome in these interactions. In addition to his scientific work being published in top peer-reviewed journals, he's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including The Mind-Gut Connection and The Gut-Immune Connection. Check out this amazing conversation with Dr. Emerin Mayer. Over 425 peer-reviewed published papers coming from this guy here, my special guest, Dr. Emerin Mayer. Welcome back to the Model Health Show. Nice to be back, Sean. All right. Right now, about three out of four of our citizens here in the United States are either overweight or obese. This is a huge issue, and a lot of people are wanting to do something about it, but oftentimes we're kind of lacking education on how to go about it in an efficacious way. Your work has really brought forward huge revelations about the impact that our gut has on our metabolic health and the outcomes of things obesity. So how does that actually work? How can what's going on in our gut be impacting things like obesity? Well, I mean, first of all, our, our gut is the entry point of everything that we eat, obviously. Um, and we have a very efficient part of the gut, the, the, the first part of the small intestine. That's where most of the absorption and en uh, enzymatic breakdown happens. But then we have another part of our gut, you know, which is the home of... Um, 100 trillion microbes and they they have their own tastes preferences and they live from everything that's left over from what we eat and it's not absorbed in the small intestine so most of the research even when i you know started my career i mean everything was focused on these mechanisms in the small intestine the absorption transport molecules um, you know the, the enzymes pancreatic enzymes that break down um, fat components, uh, bile acids that, um, you know, create molecules that can be absorbed and easier. So everything happened, all the research happened there. And um, in terms of the other part of the gut, it was just always thought, yeah, fiber, the waste material goes down there. And um, if you have a high fiber diet, it's good for you because 
the the emptying of 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 the large intestine is is, is more efficient and that's healthy this is changed completely now and this has a lot to do with the obesity epidemic our food supply has changed so dramatically in the last 75 years i would say it's been fairly stable over could we even say thousands of years with certain you know um, revolutions when humans developed uh, a method of cooking of, of 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 basically processing food and fermentation so these are always like bumps in in, in this development but pretty much the food supply uh, mainly from unprocessed you know food from uh, to a large degree plant-based many of the traditional food cultures around the world no matter if it's asia or native americans um, or the mediterranean basin it always has been a largely plant predominant um, food intake so all this has changed in the last 75 years so if you go back 75 years a big portion of what we ate the plant-based foods non-processed not certainly not ultra processed was not absorbed in the small intestine did not translate into direct access to calories but went down to the microbes the microbes processed it um, and not only you know processed this into uh, their own food because they they live off these um, for us undigestible food components but also into small molecules like the short chain fatty acids that are anti-inflammatory so our whole system has changed now i would say for some people probably 80 percent of what they eat is all absorbed rapidly in the small intestine and that's on, on top of this sugar um, fat um, and and all the ultra processed food components that don't require breakdown by by our microbial system so 80 percent of that is absorbed so giving a much greater percentage of direct calories from the food that we ingest. And a very small part goes down to, to the microbes. We're starving the microbes, essentially. And that also involves a decreased production of these anti-inflammatory molecules. And, and, and why are these important? So it's almost it's like a yin and yang in our body. There's inflammatory influences and anti-inflammatory influences. What we have now is a dominance of the inflammatory components of our food, and that leads to a lot of changes in receptors, um, both in the gut, but also in our brain, like in the hypothalamus, it regulates appetite um, and essentially is one of the main drivers for, for, for food intake. So we have knocked out the system in, or compromised the system in the brain that would make us feel satiated after a meal. And that's to a large degree through these inflammatory influences. And a down-regulation also of... Um, of these receptors like the you know the GLP-1 receptor in the hypothalamus if, if they're always overstimulated by the signal that comes from the gut in, in these endocrine cells in, in the gut they downregulate as well so if a downregulation of a lot of receptors on the vagus nerve uh, on the, in the hypothalamus in the gut um, so the system of satiety creation is no longer as effective yeah and it's largely due to the change in our food that's the thing. Larger chain, yeah. And um, so, I mean, I was like this, 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 this notion. So the, the 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 easiest way to do something for your own health and counteract obesity is really to have a food intake or have a diet that's optimized for your gut microbiome, because that will automatically solve all the other problems. It will solve the 
it's rapid absorption in the small intestine of calorie of empty calories and it will also create this source of can call it the endogenous aspirin or the endogenous um, you know anti so we have a factory of anti-inflammatory molecules that we compromise with our diet yeah and we're seeing for example those our, our fat cells themselves just getting excessively filled with these contents start sending out effectively like a false distress signal to our immune system as if those cells are infected and it's just like a an inflammation vicious circle that we get caught up in and you mentioned this and i'm so grateful you brought this up a lot of this regulation between you know our metabolism and our brain is happening in the hypothalamus and this is kind of like an internal thermostat too for our metabolic rate it's in association with our thyroid pituitary all that stuff but this is like a master gland for a lot of these processes and researchers at the albert einstein college of medicine published a really fascinating study looking at how inflammation in the hypothalamus hypothalamic inflammation or neuroinflammation was creating downstream excessive belly fat and insulin resistance and then that excessive fat and insulin resistance was creating more inflammation in the brain mm -hmm. and you just see again this vicious circle and to break the circle what you're sharing is like food is a top tier thing because these inputs are influencing our microbiome the integrity of our cells can you talk a little bit about specifically the microbes how that interplay happens because there are even bacteria that are more associated with obesity and it's insulin resistance that can kind of like start to proliferate in a way, I guess, with all these ultra processed foods. Can we call them, quote, fat bacteria? Um, well, I mean, I would say at the moment, there's a lot of, um, so in science, you make a big distinction between associations or correlations and causality. So I mean, the fact that, you, that people that are obese have metabolic syndrome, have a different microbial composition of the microbial ecosystem doesn't automatically mean there's a there's a causal relationship. So this for for the lay public this doesn't seem to be a big difference. But in science right now there's a big push. You know we don't have enough human studies that prove causality. Right. We don't know what comes first. Yeah, we, yeah, the we bacteria change out. or the obesity. But. Um, Certainly, you, you can imagine if you are on a diet that is deficient in these molecules, in these components that the microbes thrive on, the number of or the prevalence of these microbes will go down. So you have an impoverished diversity and richness of, um, of the gut microbiome. It will also affect the, the molecules that they produce. So there's been a big shift recently in recent I should say in the last five years from getting away from the individual microbes that we put so much attention to to what they actually produce so we've gone from quantifying the relative prevalence and number of certain microbes to the amount of gene expression in these microbes uh, that produce chemicals or so-called metabolites that then get into the bloodstream and you know affect many organs in our body I mean, all the way up to the brain. But this idea, so there's a lot of talk about, um, so you have an impoverished gut microbiome, you have a decrease in the short-chain fatty acid producers. It's kind of a simplistic concept we have right now, but I think it's, it's the one concept that we can say most people agree on, that the good guys in our gut are the short-chain fatty acid producers. And there's several uh, short-chain fatty acids, butyrate is the one that has gotten the most attention because it has a lot of beneficial effects from promoting the integrity of gut cells, um, 
of having anti-inflammatory effects directly on immune cells, having effects on uh, receptors in the in, in the brain. And these, these short-chain fatty acids are everywhere. They're not just in the gut where they have obviously the highest concentration, but they are that travel in our systemic circulation and reach all the organs. So if, if you look, for example, what happens in, in the brain in people with poor metabolic health, so there's, there's always um, influences from the gut microbes that are positive and that are negative. The negative ones, a lot of them have to do with actually the microbes themselves and their, their cell membrane. So there's in that cell membrane, there are molecules like the lipopolysaccharides that are sort of the classic inflammatory molecules. And so if you have a leaky gut, shouldn't really use that, that term as a scientist, but that's an increased permeability of, of, of the gut barrier and an increased um, permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So there's a series of barriers that we have between our gut and, and, and the brain. So when these are compromised, Fragments of microbes that have that have lived in the intestine first got into our gut, into our gut-based immune system, did that damage there, and then make it through the systemic circulation. They trigger engagement of cytokines from cells in our brain, not not the nerve cells, but the glial cells. We have forty percent of our brain is composed of these non-nerve cells, non-neuronal cells. So that's the one side, the, the bad side from the microbes. And that effect is the stronger, the greater the permeability of the gut barriers and the blood-brain barriers, which comes also along with the unhealthy diet. But then you have these these anti the the, the, the counter forces, which are the short-chain fatty acids and anti-inflammatory, um, you know, cytokines um, like IL-8, for example. And it's the balance between these two that really determines. And it's not just in, in, in the brain disbalance. I mean, this, this happens in the, in the immune system, happens in the liver, and the liver is a particular target of, of these metabolic, you know, modulating uh, influences. So in some ways, you could explain this in, 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 in a very easy way. Unhealthy diet leads to a compromised gut microbial ecosystem, loss of, well, not total loss, but a decrease of the butyrate producers that and normally thrive on complex carbohydrates and fiber um, and polyphenols. So if a decrease of these, that leads to a decreased production of mucus in the gut. So there's another bacteria, Acamansia, mucinophilia, very interesting uh, microbe that, that can actually, that lives on the mucus in the gut. So initially it seems paradoxical that that would be a good guy. Um, so if you go on a fast, and your microbes don't get fiber uh, any, anymore, these Acamansia microbes then feed on the, the mucus in our gut, so they decrease the layer. But at the same time, they stimulate the production of new mucus from specialized cells in the colon. So what you get is a turnover, a faster turnover, which leads to an improved mucus layer and, and an improved barrier. So if it decreases so these Acamansia diet-induced, diet you will compromise your mucus layer, increase permeability. And then as, as we said, from there on, the, the poor diet changed gut microbial ecosystem, decreased butyrate producers, increased permeability, 
and you know engagement of the immune system. So in some ways, I think we've learned a lot about this, uh, and I always say that you know microbiome science is moving at an exponential pace. What we know today will probably be a fraction of what we know in 10 years. Right. But I think there's certain trends and general concepts that are pretty supported by pretty good science and data. Yeah. Not just in animals, even though most of the data comes from animals, but um, it's also supported by human studies. Yeah, yeah. We're seeing, like with acromantia, for example, correlation with longevity as well. Like we're seeing all these really interesting things are popping up, but having some higher quality studies being done to see the impact on humans is a lot of stuff is happening right now. Uh, you know, what you just said is um, that that a microbe like acamantia this really stands out because it's been so well characterized in terms of its role in mucus, t um, in the quality of mucus production and turnover. And when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that that would have a relationship to human longevity, that, that one that one player, you know, well, we have more than a thousand species, it's just one of a thousand. Yeah. And I'm convinced there's lots of others, you know, that of either course, interact course. with acamantia, because these microbes don't act in isolation. They're, they're always communities that, you know, or little ecosystems that feed on each other. But right now we can say, yeah, it's best studied for acamantia. And, and, and it's, it's amazing that you have a, a microbe that you can measure and as a as a as a as a biomarker kind of for for gut health yeah now as you've shared this is a primary input for our health is the food that we're eating it's a huge input a lot of cellular data a lot of processes are being run the building of our different cells and tissues food is very important in this whole equation as i'm looking at you i'm seeing the food that you've eaten and vice versa and in your new cookbook, this wonderful new cookbook, you share, and I'm just gonna read a direct quote. Strangely, my entire medical training, including the specialty training in gastroenterology, didn't expose me to more than a few hours of education in food, nutrition, and diet. And your specialty is treating the organs that deal with the processing of food and only receiving a few hours of education and since then, you've been on a mission, just absorbing so much data, sharing with your colleagues, sharing with the public at large, that this part of the equation has been missing. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because obviously a lot of folks don't have all of the years, the decades that you've put into this. And by the way, you've been studying and talking about the microbiome long before it became in vogue. And you, you're truly a pioneer legend in this space. But even in medicine today, this isn't food isn't being talked about. It is not an important part of the education when again, whether it's cardiology, the heart is made from food that the patient's eating, gastroenterology, neuroscience, whatever the case might be, food is so important, but why is it not a part of our training? Yes, yeah, a really good point, Sean. Um, yeah, I wanna add a, sort of a little bit of a personal anecdote to this. So I, I grew up in this small town in southern Germany in the Alps. Um, and when I look back today, it was actually a pretty healthy, um, so with a lot of very healthy food components that we didn't really pay attention. We liked the food, we didn't pay attention. 
even though my parents would always say, this is healthy and this is healthy. And, and that ranges from a regular intake of fermented foods, you know, from sauerkraut to um, many other fermented food components that were a natural part of, of, of the diet there. It was a small amount of meat at the time, you know, just a long time ago, but, and, and it has changed. Um, the food was unprocessed. Um, my mother would buy it in the farmer's market exclusively, it would not go to any, any other place. But all this was not driven by the, in, the intense focus that we see right now in, in, in the U.S. about health and gut health. And this was a natural part of the lifestyle. I never thought about it. You know, it didn't, it didn't affect my decision to go to medical school. And, um, but then being in medicine, it was, it was a, a really, and it still continues to be, an, an, an amazing uh, recognition of how little of that food knowledge is actually getting into uh, the healthcare system. But why? Why is that? Yeah, so this, um, just give you a couple of examples. Um, so in inflammatory bowel disease, you know, the entire focus and big progress has been made scientifically in developing these, you know, biologics, these, these anti-inflammatory molecules. But diet was never a part of any therapeutic recommendations. If you imagine this, you have your entire gut on fire and your physician would not talk about the diet, you know. And if anything, there was a, a time when I was in the early part of my career where it was recommended a, a, a diet that is very low in fiber because the fiber could irritate the gut. The, the opposite of what's happening today. Now, there are attempts now. So I was recently, um, the Crohn's Colitis Foundation, a wonderful organization that sort of translates or takes questions from the lay public, from the patients, and incentivizes physicians or scientists to study those questions. So only about, I think it was five years ago, they identified diet as an important topic that patient would bring up, if, if, if you imagine this. So up to now, this was not an important topic for any IBD expert. Um, in irritable bowel syndrome, it's been sort of kind of the opposite, you know, that fat diets have come and gone over the, during my career seen so many from high fiber to low fiber to the low FODMAP, uh, you know, to the um, gluten-free diet. That has, this was really not a scientific endeavor. It was more like somebody comes up with something and then it's been promoted. So a lot of confusion in that field in, in, in IBS. And there's also progress, like if you look at our division at UCLA, was has now five dietitians um, that are part of a wellness center, a GI wellness center at UCLA. So there's some universities are, are reversing this, this, this trend. The physician themselves and um, the employees of, of medical centers, I don't think are really yet affected by this because um, just as witnessed by a recent Thanksgiving luncheon in, in our division with 50 uh, of our employees, that, um, yeah, I mean, the food that was served had absolutely zero input from any health standard. It was very carb-rich um, diet Coke and, and uh, Coke um, as, as the drinks, and as if nothing had happened. You know, this is in the middle of, of our research center, you know, mm -hmm. so it's... You said they had Wonder Bread, too. Yeah, 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 the Wonder Bread, which I hadn't seen for a long time. But was, <laughs> so I think there's good and bad sides. There's, there's definitely progress now, slowly coming. But if you imagine 
So many of the nurses, also that's another example, you know, probably the majority of the nurses in medical centers, certainly true about UCLA, are overweight and obese, which is a shame. I mean, if, so imagine you, like you go there, the nurse gives you like material, what you should do, and like, you know, at the exit visit, and that individual is 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 obese. I mean, is that something that instills trust in you that you need to do something that? So it's. Um, I think there's a responsibility. I think that healthcare systems have to rapidly adapt what's going on in the in in our world now on the internet and everywhere. But institutions are always slower than you know, uh, like social media, for example, and it's uh, in 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 the implementation. If you look at this historically, why was this never incorporated? I mean, coming from a German university, um, so diet, healthy diet in in in, in Germany at the um, in the nineteenth century, there were a lot of you know big names like homeopathy and uh, like all these different diets. There were were books written about that, you know, but it, it never made it into the medical system. It sort of stayed outside as sort of fringe knowledge that was propagated. In lieu of pharmacology. Yeah, yeah, in lieu of pharmacology. So clearly pharmacology has done a much, much better job in convincing physicians and administrators that, you know, chemically based, I mean, just like in agriculture, chemically based agriculture and chemically based treatments are, are just, that's what is modern and that's what people willing to take and, and willing to pay for. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a big fan of looking at results. If we were doing well with that model, I'd be all for it. But there's a there's a break right now where we're seeing multiple epidemics of chronic diseases and the treatment of symptoms. Most of these conditions, we're not seeing anything going into re remission largely. And there's a lot of unnecessary suffering. And a big part of this, and you know, you've been somebody who's sharing this information like, you are decades in this field and publishing a new cookbook as a physician and giving this as a solution or a important part of the solution, which is giving yourselves real food nutrition, giving these inputs so that you can shift the state of your health from the ground up rather than trying to treat a symptom, which has its place. Obviously, you've been doing that for decades, helping people when they're already unwell. But how about we focus on getting to a place where we don't have a lot of people who are unwell. Got a quick break coming up, we'll be right back. Our microbiome plays a huge role in the health of our immune system, brain health, metabolic health, and so much more. And there's one beverage that has been proven to support the health of our microbiome. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called theobrownin found in traditional fermented teas called pu'er has some remarkable effects on our microbiome. The researchers found that theobrownin can positively alter our gut microbiota and directly lead to a reduction in something called lipogenesis or the creation of new fat. Another study published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. What's so remarkable about pu'er is its concentration of polyphenols that are incredibly important for healthy gut flora. The only pu'er that I drink is a fermented pu'er that's wild harvested, making it even more concentrated in polyphenols. And it's also triple toxin screened 
for one of the highest levels of purity. Not many folks realize that a lot of conventional teas, even organic teas, contain things like heavy metals and toxic molds. This is the only company that is going above and beyond to make sure that this is the highest quality tea available. And I'm talking about the folks at Peak Life. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model and use the code model at checkout and you're going to receive up to 15% off, free US shipping, and you can even get a free sample pack of 12 teas along with their wonderful Pu'er bundles. You're gonna get access to over 20 delicious award-winning flavors, and of course, their amazing Pu'er and Pu'er blends. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. Again, that's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model. Use the code MODEL at checkout for up to 15% off, plus many other bonuses. And now, back to the show. And I want to ask you about this. One of the most alarming things is that we're seeing these epidemics of chronic diseases happening in younger and younger populations as well. I just saw some stats earlier today looking at the increased incidence of asthma in our society and the research this was published by the american lung association and from 1999 to 2018 the prevalence of asthma went up 45 percent 45 percent it was 43 percent to be exact but 45 percent in basically 20 years that is crazy and most people don't realize that allergy, asthma, these type of conditions have a lot to do with gut health. Can you talk about that connection? Yeah, I mean, these trends, you know, that we now see, you mentioned for asthma, but these trends happen really in many of these chronic diseases. Colon cancer is a good example, you know, where the, the screening, the age for recommended colon cancer screening by colonoscopy has, has moved downwards into the 40s now. I'm convinced it will move down even further same with diabetes, the same with uh, metabolic syndrome. The age keeps, patients get younger and younger. So, uh, so why, why would that be? So I, I think if you look at the, um, you know, there's, there's definitely multiple factors. I mean, nothing like this is explained by one factor. Even, you know, diet is probably one of the most important ones. But the lack of uh, regular exercise, uh, the sedentary lifestyle that most people spend you know 80 percent of the day in a sitting position and not even walking um, things that we ingest with the food like the, all the chemicals and the, that are in the environment in the water so there's multiple reasons that probably also the chronic stress you know which which affects um, not just the brain but you know through the brain gut communication affects our gut health the, the permeability and uh, also the composition of the microbes. So there's, there's many influences. Our modern world is is very very different from the you know the world where we had um, a symbiotic relationship with our gut microbes and exercise was the norm because everybody. Um, so I think the most plausible explanation for this for that diseases occur in younger age groups is the diet in that young children have it actually starts with the mo- the diet of the mother the the pregnant mother because you know the mother has a microbiome and these microbes um so many 
women when they get pregnant uh, are overweight or, or obese. I mean, if you look at this 40% uh, of the population that goes all the way down to, you know, that includes also pregnant women. So during a pregnancy like this, 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 this woman is in an inflammatory state, a low-grade inflammatory state that crosses the placenta and affects brain development and, and many physiological functions that are, are, are developing during that time already before birth. Then the breast milk. The breast milk is also influenced by the metabolic health of the mother. So the molecules that are in there, um, this human milk oligosaccharides, which are really targeted specifically at the gut microbiome of the children, is probably compromised as well in, in, in women that are metabolically not healthy when they're pregnant. And then, you know, there are things like um, delivery, methods of delivery that, you know, we have some countries like Brazil and I think Italy, 60% of women deliver uh, by C-section and not vaginally. Vaginal delivery is the time where we first colonize our, our you know, gut microbiome with with the organisms of the mother, the, the vaginal ones. And uh, even though if you look a year later, you know, most of the kids, so the difference between kids that were vaginally born and C-section born are indistinguishable, but it's been a year of time where they were different. And that's the time where there was a lot of interactions going on with the immune system of the babies uh, in, 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 in the baby's gut. And the teaching of the immune system to differentiate between Good and bad, and foreign, and uh, you know, you know, belonging to you is which is good for you, has been compromised. So that's why the period where that explains like the the increase in allergies and uh, and and autoimmune diseases. So even though the initial alarm bells went, you know, people got less excited. Say, oh, it's not such a big thing if if after a year you have the same microbiome as somebody who's vaginally delivered. Well, it, it is a big thing because you missed out on a, on a big, like the first, you could almost say the first three years of, of, of school, you know, you missed. Mm. And, and then, you know, then it, uh, and then it continues. I mean, the food that um, after breastfeeding, you know, the food that children get, the example of the mother, what's in the household, what's in the meals is obviously another big. So all of these, and then the antibiotics on, on, on top of that, you know, which again, start in the delivery room. Um, and in animal studies, it's been shown, um, you know, one of the, the, the main investigators here, uh, Marty Blazer, showed that even one dose of an antibiotic in a, in a pregnant mouse affects the microbiome uh, of, the, of the offspring. And we, you know, statistics show that by the age of two, um, there's already, forgot the exact number, several doses of antibiotics that, that, that the average child in, in the U.S. is getting. And by the age of eight, it's 10 doses of antibiotics. So during, a, during the time where the learning goes on, so the microbes in the meantime are out of elementary school, they're in college, they're still being bombarded in, mm. and interfered with in terms of their learning how to interact with, you know, with, the, with, uh, with the gut and with the, immune, and with the immune system particularly. That's also something that has not really, I think, entered the medical world. Like in OBGYN, um, still a lot of defenders. Um, it's good for the mother to get prophylactic antibiotics during delivery to prevent, you know, potentially serious infections. And um, I, I think also this technique that's been used to use a swab 
of the vagina and put it into the mouth of a newborn right at delivery that basically uh, mimics this um, that was delivered by c-section yeah yeah so it's it's the the, the uptake of this knowledge has been very slow even though i think I mean, also the use of antibiotics by, by family practitioners and pediatricians early on in life is um, often it's not their fault because the desperate mothers kind of twist their arm. My child is so sick. But still, they have the power. Yeah, they have the power. They, so pad. they could, like, if they gave an informed um, advice why this yeah. is harmful for the rest of the life of these children. Um, but it, I, I feel that, of course, you know this as well. A lot of these practitioners don't really know. You know, of course, they're not trying to do harm and looking at the temporary snapshot of the situation. And also, you know, a lot of times, and I, I've experienced this where when I first met my wife, I was I still had like these really bad seasonal allergies and I couldn't breathe in the evening. And she took me to the ER and they didn't run any panel on me to see if this was, you know, a viral infection or whatever the case might be. I got some antibiotics, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and if it wasn't for a conversation on the way home, we stopped by to see her mother, my my then girlfriend, now wife's mom. And she asked me because, you know, she said, you know, my daughter says that you're having trouble breathing. And I was like, yeah, you know, the weather changed and, you know, it's the seasons. And she said, is the problem out there or is the problem in you? And it really just like stopped me in my tracks. Like, wait a minute, there's something going on within myself and making me hyperreactive. And for me, it was a certain food category that was causing this kind of pro-inflammatory histamine sensitive reaction. And for me at the time it was dairy, but it was the dairy from obviously not the best sources, all the things, and also the quantity that I was taking. Now I can have a tryst with dairy and not have any issue at all. But at the time when I pulled that out, literally this is almost, this is 18 years ago. I haven't had a single, and I had chronic asthma growing up no asthma symptoms, no allergies, none of that stuff, it was gone. That's but that was, that was one piece, but as you said, it's usually not one thing, right? That's a part of the puzzle. For me, there's a big part of the puzzle, but also the environment, movement practices, sleep habits, you know, different environmental exposures, my overall diet change. But this is what I want people, everybody should have access to this information. But we're getting this kind of cookie cutter, one size fits all thing where, because this, we should be upset about this. Almost a 50% increase incidence of asthma just in the last 20 years. Like, that's a problem, you know? Like, we're making these sacrifices because we're looking at, even as you just mentioned, pregnancy and the delivery process as emergency surgery mm -hmm. and intervening when you don't need to intervene. And some of these statistics are crazy with the C-sections. You know, of course you can get it scheduled now if you just want to, but also you see the times of days when the C-sections are happening at physician schedules and seeing like towards the end of the day, that kind of thing, like when somebody's about to get off, you see this increase in the number that are getting done. Like we've got to step back and look at, this is going to affect the whole life of the child. We need to be grateful we have that technology to do C-sections safely. But if we're just leaning on that and now like having half or even a majority of C-sections happening in some different places, some demographics, like we've got to get more education out there about that. And I want to ask you about this as well, because, you know, getting those inputs you just mentioned from, from the mother, breast milk, childbirth, 
training for the for the immune system for um, the microbes, but then the inputs later on. And I want to pass this over to you and ask you about this. So this was published in JAMA in 2018, and they were tracking. Funny enough, is very similar time frame from 1999 to 2018 ultra-processed food consumption by U.S. children. In 1999, it was 61% of our kids' diet was ultra-processed food. 2018, it was over 67%, it was 67.5% ultra-processed food. So can you talk a little bit about the inputs for the kids in the form of these ultra-processed foods very likely having an impact on these high rates of chronic diseases happening in younger and younger populations? Yes, I mean, these, these ultra-processed foods are certainly marketed aggressively. Um, you know, like all the bars that are available and, uh, I mean, it's, it's from, this, from the breakfast cereals to the, the snacks. Um, I, I mean, I recently, not sure if how many kids would be exposed to this, but on, you know, on, a, on, on a flight to New York, so they hand out these pretzels that give you a choice between pretzels or, or something sweet. And I looked at this bag of this pretzel, and one side had the nice pretzels on it, the other side the ingredients. The entire package was full of, you know, writing what what stuff was in there. I, I couldn't believe it. There's more that you could put so much into a tiny pretzel, so many ingredients and chemicals that nobody will ever know what they do. And I'm sure this is the case for a lot of other foods as well. You know, it's um, from the food coloring to flavor molecules and you know kids obviously like this because these things are developed by experts on food preferences taste preferences um, they do tests on children which one do you like the most and which flavor and so typically you know that's but that's the simple story typically it's the addition of, of fat and and salt that is is something that that will people go to and 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 sugar. I mean, these are the three things that are most um, make make a food most attractive, and and these these snacks as well. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. These three components. There's all these chemicals of names that you may have last seen in your chemistry class, you know. And why they pick those and and what they do is is I think is very little known. But the exposure of that and this business of of selling this. I've I've seen this a little bit, um, and I've heard these these discussions, being on the advisory board of a of a dairy company that also makes um, you know yogurts and um, I mean just the, the the debates we had about the addition of sugar or uh, you know non sweetened uh, non sugar um, sweeteners the debate always comes to the same point well if you take out the sugar and don't add these other you know, not non-nutritive sweeteners. People are not going to buy it. They're going to go to the competitor because that yogurt tastes better. So this is definitely something that um, the companies know. So they know it well. They they would be willing to change it, but they don't. They can't afford to lose market share. You know, based on that. And um, yeah, I I would say this is a trend that. Also starts starts early in life. I mean, the, the the programming of food preferences starts very early. You know, if if kids are are exposed to fermented foods, for example, early on in life, they're most likely going to like that, as they are in countries like Korea and and uh, Japan. In in the U.S., that's generally not the case. So, um, 
But this programming of food preferences early on in life has a big influence on what these kids are going to consume for the next 15 years. And, and in general, they're all unhealthy components. You know, as I said, it's the sugar, it's the fat, it's the chemicals. It's definitely not the addition of fiber to it. Yeah, I would say it's, uh, and, and I've seen this practically, as I said, in, in, in a company that has the best intentions to make healthy foods and it's their, their logo um, and their mission. But it's been a struggle for them to really make a big case for sugar, you know. And and, yeah. and, and sugar is, is, is one of those things that has played one of the, the, an outsized role in, in, in this unhealthy diet that we're consuming. Even with fiber, for example, though, the a lot of these different terms that we're becoming aware of, they're used for health washing. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was trying to eat healthier and going from my uh, Honey Nut Cheerios addiction to like, let me get an adult cereal, like a grown-up cereal, and I would do these um, Quaker oatmeal squares. And it was so still so high in sugar, but it said it was high in fiber. Yeah. So yeah. I, I thought that that was the better choice. And then of course, come to find out later, I was just like, I never really looked at the amount of sugar that I was consuming from that. And also, a recent analysis done by the Environmental Working Group, they looked at some of the most popular cereals on US store shelves, and they found that these oatmeal squares, which was my favorite cereal, were the most contaminated with glyphosate yeah. of any of these other cereals <clears throat> tested, right? And can you talk a little bit about that as well? You know, the influence of pesticides and, and herbicides and things like that on our microbiome. Glyphosate is getting a lot of news right now. And also it's noted by the WHO to be a, a group 2A carcinogen. So probable cancer causing agent in humans, not confirmed, not 100%, but it's another big question mark. Yeah, I mean, the glyphosate story is is kind of amazing because some of the most recent data and in, in, uh, information in, in, in the news has been that the European Union has basically refused to issue a ban on the use of glyphosate. So farmers can continue based on lack of scientific evidence, you know, that's, uh, so that's really a very sad part of that story. I mean, the whole glyphosate story is, when this was approved early on, you know, it was, they had human cell cultures and they exposed it to, to uh, glyphosate and uh, they, they did not uh, find any negative harmful effects on the short term, um, was not tested in humans. Um, and based on that, they got, um, FDA approval or uh, FTC approval uh, to, to use this extensively. Um, in the meantime, we know, you know, humans, we, we don't have the enzyme that breaks down glyphosate into uh, the, the very harmful component. But all, this, all these studies were done, uh, you know, before micro, uh, microbiome science came on the scene. So now we know that certain microbes can break down glyphosate into these harmful chemicals. And so our microbes in the gut, this is it's one of the rare examples where they can actually, their ability to metabolize chemicals um, has a negative effect on us. Um, it doesn't harm them, but, but it has a negative effect on us. So just based on that, I think what, what the FTC or the FDA would have to do is to put it on hold and you know, demand studies in humans with the, with the gut microbiome you know, to show that these early you know, discerning approvals of, of, of its use in, 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 in extensive amounts, it's just not justified, you know. And there's also been a phenomenon that, you know, the weeds that um, become 
which, which are the targets of glyphosate, you know, to kill plants that the farmers don't want to contaminate their, their fields. And um, they, you know, they've, they've become partially resistant. So these weeds have developed genes that are now resistant to the normal amounts of glyphosate. So the doses had to be increased that are sprayed on them, which means that <clears throat> the likelihood that even after washing that there's still glyphosate on these plants has increased significantly. It's and even used as a desiccant, though, yeah. you know, to dry out these different plants, to help process them faster. It's used in ways that it wasn't initially proposed to be used for. Like the, the concentration of the exposure is very different from what, when we're looking at these studies earlier on to get it onto the market. Absolutely. And first of all, it wasn't done with human models, it's just like, but then it's used for human food. It's just like this very sketchy area. And I, I'm glad you brought this up too with the FDA and having a certain amount of evidence. And the thing is, you know, these companies are very powerful. You know, Monsanto is, is incredibly powerful. And, you know, even things that are still caught up in red tape, unfortunately, like chlorpyrifos, another pesticide has been shown in multiple peer-reviewed studies to lead to birth defects and spontaneous, you know, loss of babies and brain damage and all this different stuff. But it's still on the market, you know, and there's there's litigation and things like that. But the thing is, if you don't keep your finger on the button this whole time, like we got to keep on going after this thing, the next thing comes up and we get distracted, you know. So it's just like there's all these newly invented things in our food supply. And you and I both agree a lot of these things are trying to do good initially, you know, like feed Americans, get more food to people. Yeah, so the whole green kind of revolution stuff. was became possible, you know, with with with, with this with these monocultures in, in in the Midwest that food production became so much more efficient. I don't know what what percent increase through some of these you know what, what I call chemical agriculture. So that was a good thing, but but I mean the bad thing is um, even if it were banned here, you know, there was like a few years ago, Bayer bought um, the, the, the patent from uh, Monsanto for the, um, I actually don't remember now if they actually bought Monsanto as a company or, or just the patents for glyphosate. So they probably bought this because they know it's, yeah, it, it may get banned in, in the US because I was always wondering why would a company make such a, a risky investment? But there's the whole uh, developing world, right. you know, they sell this stuff to the developing world. And I've, I've recently seen it on a, on a trip to Brazil, where we spoke at a meeting and then we had time to, you know, took a week to go to this area called Pantanal, which is this beautiful area with some of the high, highest biodiversity in the world. And you drive through this area and on the one side of the road, you see an incredible abundance and diversity of, 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 of wildlife and plants. Look on, on the right side of the road, you see endless um, fields of soybeans and um, corn, you know, and there's, there's even signs, they don't even hesitate to put signs up with which chemicals are being sprayed, you know. And then if find out from our guide, you know, what, what's behind all this is, so the Chinese have bought up a lot of land in Brazil under names of Brazilians, because I think foreigners cannot do that to that extent. And all this, this, this corn um, and soybeans go to China, um, where it's being fed to, you know, cows and pigs for, for their own food production. But it's heavily contaminated by these chemicals. It not only destroys the biodiversity in Brazil, in this beautiful area, but it, 
it's it's transported further around the world, you know, into into places. And I'm sure a company like Bayer knew that, you know, so the business will always be there. May not be there in, in, in the US, but it, it may be somewhere else. That's so unethical, yeah. you know, just to know like, okay, this is banned here. We've got, you know, good evidence why this is getting taken out of the food supply. But the company's like, well, we could go and make money over here with the same thing because we're making a lot of money. And just looking at the margins, looking at returns, all those things and putting profits over people. And that's the problem oftentimes with a lot of this stuff is that it might start off with good intentions, but then there's going to start to be a, it's gonna come down to money and being able, especially if it's a publicly traded company, shareholder value is the top tier, most important thing. Absolutely. And so we've gotta, again, be aware that a lot of this stuff is going on. We've gotta get more education out there about that. Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine stated that all disease begins in the gut. We often think of this in terms of chronic diseases, but this holds true for infectious diseases as well. He had a plethora of nutritional treatments for his patients. And according to a study cited in the journal Frontiers in Pharmacology, one of his most notable treatments for preventing infections was propolis. Propolis is time-tested immune support from the world of bees. And today, numerous peer-reviewed studies are affirming its benefits. One study published in the peer-reviewed journal Antiviral Chemistry and Chemotherapy revealed that propolis has significant antiviral effects, specifically in reducing viral lung infections. Now, a little fun fact is that Hippocrates used propolis both internally and externally for his patients. And again today, the external benefits are being highlighted in new studies as well. This study published in Phytotherapy Research found that topical propolis that was applied a few times a day, it was three times a day in this study, accelerated the healing of cold sores faster than the placebo group. The researchers found that topical propolis not only reduced the amount of herpes virus present in a person's body, but it also protected the body against future cold sore outbreaks. One other study, and again, there's so many, this is a meta-analysis of multiple studies published in the evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine. And it found that propolis has antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal, and anti-tumor properties. It is well noted to be an immunomodulator that increases the body's resistance to infection. This is one of the most supportive things that you can do for your immune system. And it's one of my favorite go-tos that I use on a regular basis. And I'm talking about the propolis immune spray from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model, and you're going to get 20% off their propolis immune spray and also store-wide on their other incredible bee products, including their superfood honey and their royal jelly supplement that is incredible for our cognitive function. Go to B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 20% off. Get yourself hooked up right now with their incredible propolis immune spray. It is something that I always have on hand. I travel with it. It's actually in my bag right now for whenever I'm traveling and on the road and also just keeping my family healthy proactively especially during cold and flu season. Hop over there, check them out. Beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 20% off. And now back to the show. Your new book, Interconnected Plates that I have right here. Beautiful new book. This was a family affair as well. Your wife had a lot of input into this book and it's sharing 
a lot of the most time tested, you know, a lot of people are hearing about this stuff now, like different blue zones and things like that, but just a lot of the principles that lead to some of the longest lived, healthiest populations and basing your recipes and advice around that. So can you talk a little bit about the inspiration and some of the science that's in this new incredible cookbook, Interconnected Plates? Yeah, the reason I, I wrote this book, you know, I've spent my entire career, um, I would say adult life, writing scientific papers. So um, to write this book, the inspiration came from a couple of sites. One is after I published my, my first two books, which are, you know, heavy on the science uh, aspect, I got a lot of emails, a lot of requests from people and, and, and from my patients. They said, yeah, this book was really interesting, but um, so based on that, so what should I eat then? You know, what, what's what's your recommendation? And I didn't really have the time, like in my in my practice, to explain this in detail. Everybody so I said, okay, we need to write a book summarizing it. But then other things came together. So I'm a big fan of 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 Mediterranean countries, and I've traveled there, and I've friends there, and I've been invited for you know homemade dinners and 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 meals. So that that sort of personal preference for that for that kind of diet has been a, a, another incentive, and I mentioned this in in the book as well. Another pr very important part is that you know the more I've sort of spent in this in in this field of healthy lifestyle and healthy diet, I've sort of realized that this Mediterranean diet has got a lot a lot of press. It's not the Italian diet, it's not the Spanish diet, because that has been changed over the last 75 years as well, becoming less healthy. That the Mediterranean diet concept is a lifestyle. You know, it's socializing, um, having meals with family and friends. If you spend a summer evening in any of Itali any Italian town, you see hundreds of people, you know, walking around talking with friends eating outside it's, it's an experience that you you just don't have here you know um so it's 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 the lifestyle um a lot of countries around in this area also have sort of a strong spiritual connection you know um, i i think that it's stronger than in other parts of the, of the world and yeah i would say the I mean, the lifestyle is 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 a big component. It's not just what you eat, but in which context you eat it. And yeah. I think people have forgotten this. You know, you can have the healthiest pre-packaged meal and eat it in your car or eat it just before a meeting. It's not the same thing. Your 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 brain does not send that message to the gut. Now is the time to relax and to digest and to feel good. So I, I think that's one thing that I really was important. But I think the main thing was based on all the writings I've, I've done and, you know, we've talked earlier about this, uh, the importance of these short-chain fatty acids, these anti-inflammatory molecules. Well, I mean, the reason you can, uh, you know, ramp up the production of these is by eating a diet that's rich in complex carbohydrates or um, what's also called microbe-accessible um, foods that the uh, you know that the microbes turn into metabolites that then in include these anti-inflammatory molecules uh, they also you know this type of cuisine or uh, type of diet is very rich in these polyphenols these large molecules that not only are food for the microbes but the microbes turn them into health promoting molecules which are then absorbed in our gut and make it all the way to the to the brain 
So it's a practical application. If, if you ask me, so what can I do to follow your advice? If you eat for the health of the microbiome, that's best for your own health. I said, it's, it's the recipes. And there's many more recipes. Obviously, we did not make this an exhaustive list of, of um, each region in Italy, for example, or each region in Spain has their own version or variation on this on this theme. But so, some of the components, and uh, you know, I, I have a, a paragraph on this in this book, um, the four Fs of a healthy diet. So it's it's the flavonoids. Flavonoid content is polyphenols, antioxidants. It's the fiber. It's the fatty acids. Um, omega-3 from the fish component. And the fourth one is fermented foods. So that originally, I, I didn't conceptualize this as part of the Mediterranean diet, but when you think about it, cheeses are an, an important part of it, of, of, the, of the diet. And um, just like in the French and the Spanish version of the Mediterranean diet. We don't think about mozzarella right it's it's very different from what we might experience here in the u.s yeah as a matter of fact it is it can be dramatically different it, yeah it can be dramatically i mean a lot of cheeses in in the in the u.s are either yellow or, or i mean most of them are yellow or orange and they're ultra processed these these little mm -hmm. hamburger slices you put in 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 a in a cheeseburger they're ultra processed cheeses so they would not have any of these health benefits but we know in the meantime for a healthy microbiome Naturally fermented foods are an important component, just like fiber is, and just like uh, the flavonoids or the polyphenols are. Um, so it's it's kind of a really simple simple recipe. So you take these four components of food, you put them in delicious dishes, and you eat them in the context of family and friends, um, not being stressed and you do the best thing for your microbes and, and for yourself. So it's a very easy formula that, you know, science is still revealing the details of which molecules and everything, but I, I think the basic recommendation that we can make currently is not gonna change. You know, it's, um, there's also a phenomenon, you know, this, this high percentage of bread and, um, and, and carbs in the Italian diet, for example, like pizza and pasta and rice, makes up a big proportion of the diet, but it's made from different flour as well. You know, so it's not, I've seen this uh, several times with some patients that I had that did a, a year abroad in Italy that had a lot of issues with digestion and, um, and were convinced this has to do with, with, uh, with gluten. They went to Italy, and after one week, they would eat pizza and bread and and, and rice and everything. Um, and when they came back, the first thing they had at the airport triggered the old symptoms again. Mm -hmm. So, part of this could be, you know, psychological conditioning. That, but I've heard this from enough people. Um, and yeah, I mean, then you dig deeper into this, you see like the 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 grains, the variety of grains that are still that are grown in Italy. I forgot what the name is, uh, what the number is. I, I think it's several hundred. And it's been reduced to a handful. It's the same thing with the potatoes. You know, if, if, if you go to, to countries that eat a lot of potatoes, like in Asia, um, the variety of these potatoes is much higher than the one or two that we have here that are basically grown to be optimal for French fries.
mm-hmm. you know so right. it's um it's a seeming paradox that this high content of carbs in the italian diet mediterranean diet that w- this would be good for you but it's it's the kind of carbs that this is made of and you're encouraging obviously this is through the lens of improving gut health and truly if folks who've been struggling with health issues in particular autoimmune issues as well just follow your book and just eat these recipes these the recipes are also beautiful and they're incredibly simple they're incredibly simple they're just real food ingredients very simple beautiful delicious and also you're sharing this book in correlation there's a pbs special involved and you wanted to be able to have full control on the creative aspect and also the education and so you and your team put this together rather than going through a conventional publisher and you're making this available for everybody it's kind of ironic you know so one motivation as i said earlier to write this book was that i got all these requests from from patients but what actually triggered it acutely was the fact that when i signed this deal with with pbs to produce a film which is coming out actually in a, in, in a couple of days on on friday the the brain gut connection uh, it's it's a, a a one hour documentary on the same topics of we've been talking about so they want to have these giveaways and you know i was um spontaneously said yeah we can make a cookbook and we can make uh, an online course and you know we, uh, you can hand out some of my scientific books and they said yeah that's a great idea and so now we had nine months to produce this book and from 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 scratch you know and um i think a lot of a lot of passion went into it from the contributors who are um, women that m- make these dishes and have learned to, to make these dishes from in, in their families as a big f- family tradition i mean we could have just gone to you know there's many mediterranean cookbooks out there got healthy cookbooks out there but this has sort of a, a, a unique twist to it both personal experiences which i mentioned in this book traveling in italy the homemade recipes um, and then always with this overarching theme this has to be good for your gut and your overall health and 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 your microbes and for your overall health so it was it was nice to sort of integrate these different elements and where can people pick it up so uh, this is self-published so if you go to my website emeronmayer.com um, there's a link and you can order the book there. You'll get it w- between one and two weeks um, to your house. So this is, you know, this isn't that uh, fast food type of version of a book. This is like slow cooker. You're <laughs> going to get something really delicious and health- healthy, just a little bit more patience. And I highly encourage people to support this project because you're doing this the right way and taking total control of this and not allowing any entity to water this down and this is the power that we have you know you are very very prestigious and you know if we're talking about just the amount of studies that you've published yourself like you're in an entire you're you're in the point zero 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 percent of the population (laughs) of scientists and it is incredible that you're focusing on food and giving people literally the keys to the kingdom on what to eat to improve their gut health and improve their health overall. So I really appreciate that. Go to emerinmayer.com and get your copy of Interconnected Plates right now. And when you're on the website, you'll also find a link to sign up for our newsletter, which comes out on a weekly basis with 
addressing topics, a wide range of topics, you know, from from human health to gut health to environmental health. Um, so we usually have a mix of those of, of those topics, which I strongly believe are interconnected. So this this theme, this word interconnected, got into my mind <laughs> some ten years ago, and ever since. Um, all my projects that I've pursued have this interconnected theme in it because I think it's it's the new way of looking at the world. You know, if well, the big mistake that everybody has been making in the business world, in the medical world, science, um, is that we had this linear worldview of of thinking that you know one cause has one effect um, and everything else can be controlled for, so the results are statistically significant or but the collateral damage from, from that thinking is huge. I think a lot of the problems we see in the world today is that we have lost that paradigm of, of interconnectedness, that everything that we do and interact with has ripple effects throughout the system, um, which is in some ways a good thing. So you can say if you, if you do your contribution, you'll have a widespread effect on small effects, but, um, but it can also be, you know, it can also be a bad thing that you spread misinformation through an interconnected like the internet for example you know so it's yeah, it's just how it's how it's being used and you're helping folks to get connected to valuable real science-backed information and of course i truly appreciate that so my guy dr emory mayer thank you for coming to hang out with us thanks sean as usual it's it's a pleasure awesome well i appreciate you truly dr emory mayer everybody thank you so much for tuning into the show today i hope you got a lot of value out of this definitely support Dr. Mayer's incredible new cookbook. This is a great gift to give to family and friends that are wanting to improve their gut health and just health overall. And that's gonna be at emerinmayer.com and you can get access to interconnected plates. Listen, we've got some epic, I'm talking about epic masterclasses and amazing guests. This is gonna blow you away. Coming up very, very soon, so make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.